This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 18, Episode 50. This is Writing Excuses, the unreliable narrator. Fifteen minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And you can't trust us. <laughs> I'm someone. I'm someone else. I'm a third person. I'm Howard. <laughs> but the most reliable, unreliable answer. <laughs> and we are going to be talking today about the unreliable narrator. This is one of my favorite techniques. I... Well, I actually believe that all narrators are unreliable in their own way because it's always whenever you're telling a story, even in life, you're telling it from your perspective. But when we talk about unreliable narrators, these are when you're actually trying on purpose to have your narrator either believe or represent something different than the actual facts of what's happening on the page. Um, and I have this whole construct slash theory of unreliable narrators that I'm going to pitch you all in <laughs> sections. Uh, so the first part I'm wondering about is, do you think it matters if the narrator knows that they are unreliable versus if they are fooling themselves and therefore fooling the reader? I think it's incredibly important because it changes the relationship to the audience. Mm. So if your audience is reading a book that has an unreliable narrator who does not realize that that is what they're doing, then they we are going through that journey with them. We are experiencing their slow realization that they are being unreliable, or we are watching them descend further and further into a break from reality, right? So there, there's us walking with somebody if the narrator is being deliberately unreliable and lying to us, then it's a different kind of experience where we are sort of, uh, the audience is almost antagonistic to the narrator in a certain way. doesn't mean that the narrator can't be sympathetic and fun and all of those things. and almost has to be to balance that out. But it, it requires a different care that you're taking of the audience to make sure that when the reveal comes that they've been lied to, that they don't feel betrayed and angry at you, the author. I played How to Host a Murder once, and I was the killer, but the first two pages of my booklet were stuck together, and I did not know I was the killer. I didn't know. And so I was the most convincing liar out of anybody, because I was utterly innocent <laughs> in my own mind of this killing. We went through the end, and uh, yeah, I totally got away with it. They're like, okay, who was the murderer? Who has the, I, I don't know. Everybody look at the, everybody. And we passed around our books. Somebody said, Howard! And they peel it apart. like, you did it! <laughs> oh, I did? Yay, I got away with it. Um, and to me, that's, that's the big distinction. The, the unreliable narrator who knows they're lying can be tripped up in their lie, can be can be dishonest, they're, they're dishonest with an agenda. Whereas the unreliable narrator who just doesn't know the truth is going to be utterly honest about what they know and is, to my mind, more convincing. Mm -hmm. As we're talking about this, I'm thinking about something that I did in Relentless Moon, which is that my main character has two secrets. Um, and one of them she's keeping 
uh, secret for societal reasons. She uh, has anorexia. And the other she's keeping secret for spoiler reasons, um, which is... And, and so she's keeping those both secret from the reader. Um, but then she also has a secrets that she is keeping from the other characters. Mm. And so one of the things that I was... But that she's sharing with the readers. So one of the things that I was playing with in that was having her lies be in the same patterns. Mm. So that when when the reveal happened, that you recognized that that you had been lied to in the same way that the the other characters had been lied to about this different packet of information. Ooh, mm-hmm. that's cool. That is really cool. I was just thinking about the word reveal. So what I think is really interesting is that secrets are meant to be revealed. Mm-hmm. And so part of the difference between these two unreliable narrators is what the story is building towards. Yeah. So in if you're hiding a piece of information, your narrator is on purpose, at some point there's a general sense that that will be revealed in a specific moment or like it will come to light. Whereas if the person is fooling themselves, I think of it more of a revelation, mm. a slow <laughs> revelation by the reader that something is happening that they shouldn't trust. But it doesn't has to have, there's not necessarily a moment, there can be, but it doesn't have to go to like one like, and then, you know, you'll never guess what really happened. But more, as you're getting more and more details about the world, you're like, there seems to be something that's askew. Mm -hmm. And that kind of brings me to one uh, craft technique that I learned about in creating unreliable narrators, which is that if they don't know that they're being unreliable, you have to give some sort of signpost to the reader that they are. Yes. Usually by bringing in something that the audience can make a very clear um, judgment about mm-hmm. and be like, well, that isn't the way I would interpret it. And they're interpreting it very differently. So something is off. Mm-hmm. In Wolfie Things, there's a moment where he sees his mother crying um, and he's like, she's still trying to like salt the, you know, the food, yeah. right. you know, with her tears, like just cause like, and like, that's so off. Like she's obviously upset about like the appearance of this wolf and mm-hmm. what's going on there, but he misinterprets it so wrong, like so badly yeah. that you're thinking, okay, there's like something, he's not seeing the world the way that other people see the world. Yeah. How do you make sure in that moment that the reader isn't just like, oh, you, the author, missed something or like, oh, that doesn't make sense to me. This book is bad, right? Like, because I think when I see that done poorly, that is the result, right? The result can be like, oh, I'm just not connecting with this. I don't understand this character. They're acting illogically in some way. Um, But when it's done really well, for me, that's like the most exciting thing, right? Like, I loved that moment of realizing like, oh man, this mom had a way different experience than what this kid can see. And it makes sense because he's a kid, right? Like, so... I hang a lantern on it. I it, it creates conflict. Another character in the scene, I use it a lot with world building. Um, I especially use it with world building when I realize, man, I built a thing earlier and I had characters talk about it and I don't like it. I don't think it works that way. I need them to have been wrong. And so mm-hmm. another character comes in and says, hey, guys, I think you're talking about this all wrong. Let's have an argument. And there's comedy and there's argument and the reader now sees, oh, oh, yeah, I had some questions about that too. But now that a character is asking questions about it, I'm fine. And they don't actually need to resolve it. They, mm-hmm. just, need to, they just need to question what was happening. And now the reader 
no longer blames you, the writer, because they're like, oh, yes, my concern has now been raised in the text. I'm fine. I'm on board with whatever Mm -hmm. continues. Yeah, Yeah, parallax can be really useful if you're in a longer text, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're a novel, you have multi-POV, you can have sort of two characters looking at the same thing from slightly different angles, and you can sort of see the difference between them. Um, In a really tight, constrained text with a single voice, like, how do you make that clear? I think one way is by bringing in an, yeah. an outside influence. One of the reasons, one of the roles that the conjure man plays in Snake Season is to present a point mm. of view in the narrative that is not the point of view of the character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to see her interact with something that I can, I could give you like, here are the actual facts of what's happening in this interaction. And here's the way she's seeing this interaction and sort of, sort of show how those two things are diverging from each other mm-hmm. as a way for you to be like, okay, something is a little different here. And then at the very end, there's the husband's you know, point of view and what he says in dialogue is another way of saying like, this is where he's just describing exactly what he's seeing and what he understands. And that's also a way to show an even greater mm-hmm. contrast. And as the contrast between the character's perspective and these other characters that they interact with become greater and greater, right. it gives a sense that there's more and more unreliability. I think the other thing that's really important is to give your character an absolutely genuine belief and reason for believing what they do. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if you're if you're like, oh, I'm just going to have them misunderstand this as a technique, it doesn't feel true to the character. Like, Nikki really believes that that's what's going on with his mom. He's really wrong. But what his belief is seems like it's really genuine and it's coming from a place of heart. Mm-hmm. And I think if when people are sympathetic to your characters, then they care about them and they want to understand why they're seeing the world the way that they are. And that really brings them into the, oh, this is what the character is about mode versus this is what the author is doing mode. Mm-hmm. You basically keep them tightly in the head of the narrator so that they don't have time to think about what else yeah. is going on. Yeah, yeah. but I think the the just to draw a line under the thing that you said, um, which is in that signposting that Howard was talking about, that you you present the reader with something that is clearly recognizable to the reader mm-hmm. as a, um, you know, like his mother is looking out the window and giggling. It's like, okay, she's not afraid of this wolf. And and then having having that obvious misinterpretation then sets them up, before you get to all of the other misinterpretations, sets the reader up to know, to, to look for that. Yeah. Um, one of the other pieces uh, along those lines, which is, which is, I think, something that you're also doing with Nikki is what I call the doth protest too much. Mm-hmm. That they spend a lot of energy trying to justify their belief. Mm-hmm. That that they they think about it and talk about it yeah. way more than than it would be. It's, otherwise, it'd be like, oh, mom's upset again, and yeah. you move on. But it's like mom's upset because of this, or or actually, it's because of this, and you know, like th- that they 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 doth protest too much. Exactly. All right, I love this. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and we come back. I have another question to pose for you in my grand unified unreliable narrator theory. Or will we? <gasps> Hey writers, are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures, and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer, better stories. A great way to do that is with Rosetta Stone, a trusted expert for over 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered. They use an immersive technique which leads to fast language acquisition. It's an intuitive process that helps you really learn to speak, listen, and most of all think in the language you're trying to learn. They also feature true accent speech recognition technology that gives you feedback on your pronunciation. It's like having a voice coach in your home. 
Learn at home or on the go with a desktop and mobile app that let you download and access lessons even when you're offline. And it's an amazing value. A lifetime membership gives you access to all 25 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Japanese, and, of course, Korean. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. These days, work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries. And with that, we sent away good jobs and our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make all kinds of high-quality clothing and activewear, like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more, right here in the USA. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs in towns and cities across the country. And jobs bring pride. Purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This week, I have a short story collection for you. It is Lost Places by Sarah Pinsker. Sarah Pinsker is an amazing short story writer. I got You gotta love that there are two Hugo and Nebula winning short stories in this collection, uh, To Truths and a Lie and Where Oaken Hearts Do Gather. But there's just, it's story after story after story. One of the things I find really interesting is that she does, she thinks about the world in such a fascinating way. And I feel like there are the stories that she's really well known for, but some of the quieter pieces that are in here, uh, like I frequently hear music in the very heart of noise, are just really beautiful love letters, I think, to the form and just expertly crafted short story experiences. So that's Lost Places by Sarah Pinsker. We're back. We weren't lying about it. (laughs) (laughs) So the second question that I have for you all about the unreliable narrator is the scope of the unreliability. And so the way I think about this is like you can have someone, like you were talking about your character having a secret. Mm -hmm. So that's like a very specific thing. The way that they, the rest of the world, everything is accurate, but this one thing is something that they're hiding. And then I think about somebody like Marie in Snake Season who... His entire worldview uh, is, you know, a little off. Like, it's not like she's hiding something specific. She's just misinterpreting everything around her. The slow build to realizing how wide the scope is of her unreliability is so much the deliciousness of that story. Yeah. There, I've used this, I've used this, I've referenced this before. The uh, lore master for uh, the Elder Scrolls Online, one of his first challenges was the fact that the Elder Scrolls games were terribly inconsistent in the way the the history of that universe played out. And their solution was 
unreliable narrators. Anytime we describe something, we want to describe it, you know, in the narrative from the point of view of a character, because a character can be wrong. But if we describe it, you know, without quotes around it, then people are going to take it as gospel truth. What was funny to me and what I just now realized with regard to scope is that in that article, the lore master never used the term unreliable narrator. It was exactly what he was talking about, but he never used that term. And on the one hand, I thought, you can't possibly not know the literary technique you're using. Mm -hmm. And just today I realized, oh, wait, you're writing game software. You don't want to put the word unreliable in the text in front of the gamers because you yeah. will you will communicate a whole new level of unreliability to them. Well, this kind of goes to one of the earliest points that everyone was making, which is anytime you have a character proclaiming the worldview, there's something always unreliable about that because we are our subjectivity inherently influences how we see the world. This is going to be a, a minor spoiler for N.K. Jemison's the fifth season. Yeah, but there's a moment in the book where you realize that the narration is second person, that you were being told the story by somebody. And that for me was such a moment of like, oh no, everything is now unreliable, right? Yeah. That subjectivity has been influencing the story this whole time. And for me, that was just like a thrilling moment because it just, by shifting me into a character's perspective, suddenly the scope of the unreliability was infinite. It was yeah. this entire story, this entire world. That was such a gut punch. I, I was actually thinking about the the broadness that you're talking about uh, with Ghost. Mm. Um, because Ghost has two things going on. One is that uh, she has been made an unreliable narrator by someone removing her memories. But she also, like when they when she takes, when they take Princess to the... Um, to, memory. To the memory Parlor, booth yeah. The, yeah. the second time... Um, None of none of her plan is in that narration, even though it's cl it's kind of clear to the audience. But you you're it, it's she is she is justifying why she's making these choices, mm -hmm. and and uh, and it's such a broad like there's so much broadness there. I think. yeah, she shifts from accidental to deliberate yeah. unreliable narrator in a way that is very fun, and it is such a heel turn in in yeah. the best ways. Yeah. yeah. And it's funny, too, because I think of thinking about her looking at Princess's memories, like, it was interesting. Like, there's a little bit of a, her questioning of Princess as whether or not Princess is actually a reliable yeah. narrator mm -hmm. of her own relationship with her father and what was happening, you know, before. And so that, I think, is also one of the reasons I love playing with memory is that, like, memory is one of the least reliable narrators yeah. that we have. And yet it is the way that we experience the world and kind of go through yeah. it. Yeah, and the fact that Princess was a reliable narrator was the unforgivable crime, right? The the realization that someone was dared to tell the truth was but, unbearable. Yeah, dared to tell the truth and also all of the things that Princess may not have understood yeah, about her exactly. own situation. Exactly. It's like, yeah, yeah. there are so many layers of unreliability in that story mm -hmm. and, and, and revelation. And I have a question, speaking of, of sort of reveals about characters with secrets, uh, which is something I do less of. I tend to do like unreliable on a broad scale. Mm -hmm. How do you make sure that a character holding a secret doesn't feel like they can no longer be trusted in any way and versus just in this one way? So one of the things for me, um, it, one of my pet peeves is uh, is holding the secret too long from the reader. Mm -hmm. And so, um, 
so with the one of the ways that I, I build trust with my readers is that I will um, I'll raise a question and then answer a question, raise a question, answer a question, then raise a question, not answer the question. Mm. So with with this one, because I I knew that she had two secrets, um, I I went ahead and gave the answer to the first one within the, the anorexia within the first couple of chapters. Um, and I, I feed it to you a little bit slowly, and then I give the answer so that that the um, so at that point you're like, oh, now I can trust the the character because they have let me in on this one secret. But then all of the other secrets that she's holding, the, the other secret, you're like, well, she must be being forthcoming with me now because mm-hmm. she was honest about this other thing. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I oh. would do the... Uh, you're familiar with the uh, uh, the term save the cat. Uh, early in a story, you have a character save the cat, and now we know, oh, this is a good person. All right? Um, that trick works after you have revealed that someone was keeping a secret. You have them do the save the cat, and we're like, oh, this person is actually okay. They've done a good thing. Um, now, you may be mistrusting whether that cat was actually worth saving. You know, maybe it was a feral rabid cat and they're saving it in order to kill us all. I don't know. But but you get the point here. You're trying to, you you adjust that likability slider mm-hmm. uh, strongly. You know, crank that all the way up so that we're willing to trust them again. Yeah. yeah. This maybe jumping a little bit too ahead and also maybe too much of a personal taste thing, but I... Always want to caution writers about over-relying on the twist-type reveal. Yes. Right? So, two movies that are incredibly popular, so this may undermine my point, but The Sixth Sense and Old Boy, the Park Chan-wook movie, both rely on last-minute reveals that completely recontextualize all the action that has happened up until that point. I, as an audience member, in both of those cases even though there's other aspects of those movies that I really admire and really like, felt almost betrayed by the narrator, right? And the narrator, in this case, wasn't a character, but it was the authorial voice of those movies. And so I got mad at M. Night Shyamalan, the person, which was unfair. And I, it's not, I, I don't hold a grudge against the man. He's fine. He makes good movies. But, like, there was an aspect of that that— Doth protest too much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to be nice. It's okay uh, to be mad at him for the Avatar movie. Uh, sure. But, I mean, <laughs> it, there, there's a way in which that twist can really undermine your, your audience's relationship to the text. Now, that can be done very, very well. Sometimes that twist— will have that backward ripple effect. Um, one example I think of is Neon Genesis Evangelion, which I rewatched recently. There's a late reveal of Asuka's character that makes you recontextualize why she is the way she is in a way that I think is beautifully done and makes a character that I find very annoying suddenly, for me, one of the most sympathetic characters in the show. So, anyways, I'm not getting into the spoilers of that, but there are ways to do it really, really well, and there are ways that I think sometimes if you don't have enough time after to resettle back into the story it can just leave you with the feeling of being uncomfortable and unsettled in a way that is unpleasant to me narratively. So I I have this personal theory that one of the reasons that, that that particular thing happens to early career writers is that they are they are themselves unreliable in that <clears throat> they didn't know the answer to something. So they were just like, well now it's a now it's a big secret that I'll reveal later. And mm. then 
And then they keep going until they hit a point where they have to reveal it. And they are justifying themselves to it, justifying that choice to themselves all along as, well, I'm, I'm doing it this way because I'm going to build tension and we'll have this big twist. And really it's that they just don't know the answer mm-hmm. and don't want to write those scenes. Yeah. You've read the first three years of Schlock Mercenary. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not, you know, pointing like... Oh, man. (laughs) Doth protest too much. (laughs) I will say, like, I think a lot of it's also trust in yourself as a writer. Yeah. That without a gimmick, people will still want to read your stories. Yeah. One of the things that I struggled with a lot in trying to write Wolfie things was that I tried to make some of, like, the relationship between him and the wolf, like, a lot more like a lot less clear in mm-hmm. original versions, like where it was like a big mm-hmm. twist at the end. Mm-hmm. And I would give it to people and they were like, that's fine. But like, I really didn't need to be surprised by that. Mm-hmm. And in some ways not being like being able to have your own revelation as a reader earlier yeah. and then see that you understand the truth of things and it's still going to go horribly wrong was actually more fun than the feeling of like, you got me this that is, happened at the end of the story. This is the thing I've learned as a GM is that it has been way more fun just to tell my player stuff and just be like, here's what's going on. And then they're like, oh no, that's bad. And then they have to figure out what to do with that information. And then you yeah. can have more twists and reveals, but it's grounded in them knowing what's going on versus me trying to like surprise them with the big gotcha moment. And I think that can be disorienting and unsatisfying for me as a storyteller and for them as the audience. We're yeah. recording in Utah. One of my favorite hikes here in Utah is to a place that we call First Falls up above Sundance. And from the from the starting point of the hike, you can look up the hill into the cirque, you know, up the mountain into the cirque, and you can see the little ribbon of waterfall. You know that that's the ending. You know that that's your destination. Mm-hmm. And as you walk, the scenery is beautiful. The plants, the bees, the bugs, the whatever else. There is this experience on the hike that is just wonderful, but the whole time you're hiking, the waterfall is now no longer visible. And then you come around a corner to it, and it's bigger, and it's loud, and it's wonderful, and the whole voyage has been rewarding. It was not that last turn that made mm-hmm. it worthwhile. Exactly. That yeah. last turn it's was a payoff, a, but it's it was not, a payoff, yeah. but mm-hmm. it was not the whole reason right. you took the trip. Exactly. I, I think for me... Um, the 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 key is what emotion do you want the reader to have, and it is it is that emotion? Oh, that author is clever, or is the emotion? Oh, I I the the the, the crippling dread. The like, yeah. what emotion are you trying to have with the reader? Exactly. All right. Now we have already been slightly unreliable about our fifteen minutes long, so <laughs> I am going to bring this together into my grand unified theory for two seconds, and then we will go to the homework, which is to kind of think about how these two things intersect. And I'll we'll put a lovely graphic in the the show notes so that you can check it out. But thinking about what you want to do, I often think about how these two things come together: how intentional the narrator is in their unreliability or the author is in their unreliability and how broad it is. So you've got your M. Night Shyamalan twist. Mm -hmm. That's when you're being broad. The entire nature of what you thought about this thing is wrong. And I'm going to tell you at the end intentionally, you've got something that's a secret that's intentional and specific. I am not going to tell you about this one aspect of me, but everything else is the way you think it is. 
There's what I call the the memory hole, which is unintentional and specific. That's the I've repressed the memory of that time I killed that guy. Um, <laughs> the, you know, the pages of my How to Host a Murder book are stuck together. <laughs> exactly, but everything else you did was actually accurate to the character. It was just those stuck pages. And then lastly, the false belief, which is my favorite, which is when you're broadly wrong about everything around you. I have to say, when Aaron first showed me this chart, I then spent the next 10 minutes in a fugue state just categorizing everything I've ever read into each of these categories. It is one of the most useful infographics I've seen about this topic. And uh, Aaron, you're very good at this. Yeah. Thank you. And with that, we will go to the homework. All right. Take an event that you are familiar with, which probably means it has to be something that personally happened to you, and write about it as truthfully as possible. Then, write about it from the point of view of someone who knows the basics, but not the whole truth. Sort of the memory hole. For bonus points, tell the story a third time from the point of view of a lying liar with an agenda. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. We love hearing about your successes. Have you sold a short story or finished your first novel? Tell us about it. Tell us about how you've applied the stuff that we've been talking about. Use the hashtag WXSuccess on social media or drop us a line at success at writingexcuses.com. Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, and Howard Taylor. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and produced by Emma Reynolds. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.